Welcome to a new wave of entrepreneurship. I'm Scott Sturt, founder and CEO of Venture for Canada and your host. The focus of this podcast is to hear from change makers and young Canadian entrepreneurs to learn about how they've developed their entrepreneurial mindset and skills. In season two, we'll be chatting with young Canadians about their unconventional career trajectories and what it's like to be young entrepreneurial leaders. I'm excited to dive into these conversations about how to foster your entrepreneurial mindset and drive. We are super excited to have Shivani Chutalia on a new wave of entrepreneurship today. Shivani is an engineering and financial professional focused on the intersection of clean technologies and social impact. She works with Enerstore to build, own, and operate first-of-a-kind energy storage projects, including Canada's first commercial flywheel energy storage facility and the first fuel-free compressed air energy storage facility in the world. Shivani helps to lead Enerstore's work with remote, off-grid Indigenous communities, building partnerships and projects to reduce dependence on diesel fuel while supporting local economic growth. Shivani is a board member of Environmental Defence Canada and a co-founder of Bold Realities, a platform for dialogue regarding the role of corporate Canada in reconciliation. Previously, Shivani worked to develop biogas projects in Ontario and California and worked in finance as an investment banking analyst in Calgary. Shivani holds a BESC in Green Process Engineering from Washington University and an HBA from the Richard Ivey School of Business, also at Washington University. She is a Venture for Canada fellow alumni, and we are super excited to have Shivani on the show today. Shivani, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me, Scott. I'm really excited for the conversation. It is my pleasure. I, it's hard to believe that we first met almost six years ago, and it's been so amazing to see all the impact that, that you've had uh, over the last uh, six years. And I can't believe you've been at Enerstore almost at, at six years at, at this point. So kind of reflecting on that six-year journey at, at Enerstore, Shivani, what are some of the key lessons that, that you've learned uh, in, in your journey with the company? And how have your roles and, and responsibilities at Enerstore shifted over time? Mm -hmm, that's a great question. And um, it's been really interesting for sure in terms of really seeing the company over, evolve over time. Um, as you mentioned, I've been at Enerstore for, for five, six years now, and, uh, and it's been quite the, quite the journey and process. So um, back when I joined Enerstore, uh, Enerstore, for, for those who don't know, is an energy storage project development company. So we build, own, and operate uh, energy storage assets. So it's infrastructure, um, like big batteries and, and things like that. Um, and so back when I joined the company, it was still at a much earlier stage of, of really figuring out what is the, how are we going to operate this business? How are we going to grow this business out? What do our different um, business uh, sort of our, our business models look like in the unique pillars of, of, the, of the company? Um, and so now we've really evolved to having a lot more projects, which are really in execution. And, and, um, and so I think my role has, has really evolved with the company as well. And Part of it is as we take projects from an idea uh, into an actual built out operating project, um, I've, I've been able to grow with that process and seeing the whole thing. So uh, at the earlier stages, we're doing a lot of analysis and I'm applying, often applying more of my kind of technical background and figuring out what's the size of energy storage that's needed for a particular application and doing a lot of that modeling work. Um, 
And then as you go through the development process, I get to see all of those stages figuring out permitting, for example, um, project finance and, and, and figuring out how we, how we build the business models around it, negotiating contracts and, and working with vendors, um, all those different kinds of things. And so, um, so it's been really neat, I guess, to, to see the evolution of the company as well as the projects that we're working with. So you're a graduate of the Ivy School of Business at, uh, at, at University of Washington, Ontario. And the vast majority of Ivy graduates tend to go into working at big investment banking firms, going to work in consulting, uh, going down a few specific kind of career paths. And I can imagine, I know in, in the summer, uh, you interned at an investment banking firm in Calgary. And I'm sure you, if you wanted to, you could have gone down that, that uh, path. So I, first question is, why did you try, choose to go down kind of this more uh, un, unconventional path? And what advice do you have for people who want to kind of buck the, the, social, the, the social trends to some extent and pursue a career path that is a little bit more uh, non-traditional? Mm -hmm. So when I was in business school and, and still being in touch with actually Ivy now, I feel like there has been a little bit of a shift and there is more uh, interest in, in I, ideally, I think there's a little more interest in kind of uh, support around non-traditional career paths as well. Um, but there was a very strong focus on, on the consulting, banking type of career paths that, uh, that, that, that are out there and are kind of viewed as, as, um, as where, what you should be aiming for as a young, smart person. Um, I think for me, as you mentioned, I did, I did sort of, I did work in investment banking for a summer and uh, I, I don't think I was ever particularly drawn to that as a career it was almost sort of proving to myself that I could do it if, if I wanted to. Um, but, but I think, I think there's just so much more out there than, than those types of jobs. And I think most of the jobs that are out there in general are not necessarily uh, ones that you could pinpoint even, even like an engineer or a lawyer, those kinds of things. Those are fantastic careers, but I think there's so much more out there uh, like what you do, Scott, and what, what I think a lot of the folks in, in the Venture for Canada network do. Um, that might not have been identified as uh, while we were young people as something that that was um, sort of a clear career path, but I think are is much more aligned with sort of the the interests and, and passions of of, uh, of what someone might want to do. Yeah, I think it's an important lesson for people to, to think about, particularly for recent grads when when launching uh, their careers, is to think that often people think, oh, I can be a lawyer or I can be a doctor. They think of really established kind of career paths. But the amount of different career permutations and paths people can go on are, is almost infinite. And there are so many different ways that people can, can uh, pursue a kind of a career. And I think, for example, you, you're pursuing a very unique, this combination of your engineering and your, your finance uh, kind of background and in a really creative and, and kind of impactful way. And, and it, if there's one potentially takeaway for, for listeners, it's don't necessarily feel like you need to conform and fit a specific box. Each person has their own journey and ultimately try to figure out a career path that can meld some of your unique interests uh, together. Absolutely. And I think there's a lot of value in that point specifically, Scott, of um, being, able to, being able to bring together different pieces that you might be interested in that are sort of unique to you, um, that, that you're able to bring sort of a unique perspective forward and be able to sort of form your own, your own path around those things. Um, I think there's a lot of value in having, um, 
having sort of multiple interests and trying to stitch those together in unique ways. Um, yeah. When you were a university student and you were figuring out what kind of majors and, and degrees you wanted to, to do, and you ultimately decided on doing the, a dual degree where, where you got a, a HBA from, from Ivy and then also a bachelor uh, in engineering, which is a, I think a great mixture, also a somewhat uh, a unique one. Walk us through kind of what was your decision-making process to pursue that specific academic path. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think when I was in the, those moments, I didn't necessarily know what I was doing. It's, I feel like looking back, it's easier to sort of draw the path and be like, okay, that, that, that sort of made sense. Um, in the moment, I didn't actually really know what I wanted to do. Um, and I had, I had actually applied for, for business schools primarily and was looking at options around business schools. Um, and then, and when I, when I found out that at Western with Ivy, um, because their business program with Ivy starts in third year, everybody going into the program has an opportunity to study something else for the first sort of two years of university. And they had this ability to do a dual degree. Um, I was kind of like, yeah, that's a fantastic idea. Why not? Um, and it, and I, it took me a little while to figure out what I would want to do as, as sort of a second, a second degree there. Um, and, and I ended up settling on engineering. I, I didn't have, um, growing up, like I, I guess I knew a couple engineers in our sort of family friends group, but I didn't have any sort of close personal role models of, that were engineers that I, that I really knew what that meant. Um, but I did, I did know that it focused on sort of sciences and math and, and I was really interested and I, I knew I was kind of good at math <laughs> um, and like those spaces. So, so I ended up choosing that. Um, and then within engineering as well, figuring out kind of what type of engineering I was interested in was, um, was also a big decision. And, and I, I was always really interested in um, climate, environmental issues. And so I ended up studying green process engineering, which uh, was sort of a branch of chemical engineering, a little bit more focused on the environmental side. Um, and, and again, looking back, I feel like that has served me well and kind of put me in a unique place of bringing, working in, in clean technology and, and bringing, um, bringing forward both of the, the business and engineering aspects. Um, but I wouldn't say it was particularly planned at the time. Uh, so it's a bit of a, a bit of a chicken and egg as well of, am I so interested in these pieces because I studied them or did I just, because I was studying them, I got really interested in them and kept digging into them further as well. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, yeah, I guess it's, it ended up, it ended up working out for me. Um, I guess like the other thing that I could share and related to your previous question is how I got really interested in kind of the startup scene as well. And, and being in sort of a more, um, non-traditional career in these spaces as well. So I guess through what I was studying, uh, when I was looking for ways to apply that, um, I, I ended up becoming exposed to sort of the startup world and clean technology companies. And I worked for a summer with a plastics recycling company called Green Mantra Technologies. And, um, and it was a really fantastic experience. It was a very small company and I was, I was working with them to sort of design the scale up of the plant. Um, and I loved just that atmosphere of, of being able to um, as, especially as a young person still in university as well, like being able to really make an impact on what, what was, what was needed to grow the company and seeing sort of all aspects of the business, not just, um, not just one part of it as say an engineering, a smaller engineering role. And so that really attracted me. 
Um, and when I compared that to my experience working investment banking as a summer, um, I think part of it was that I just really was really drawn to the operational aspects and, and sort of liked being on the other side of the table rather than being on the side of the table of kind of providing support and advice and, and um, services. I really enjoyed being, um, being, on, being on the side of the table where we were really, really the ones making the decisions on how to build this out and how to execute and how to, how to grow um, the company. Your unique mixture of the engineering and, and finance skills, I think, is it, it, it all probably also helps enhance your creativity as well, in the sense of one of the things is that when reading a book, kind of creativity is its ability to often connect, interrelate, or connect fields that, that are somewhat disparate. Uh, and there's that famous Steve Jobs thing that you know, creativity is connecting dots that other people don't see. The more diverse someone's knowledge and the more diverse their experiences. Uh, and that, to your point earlier, often can be unintentional. It means just learning what someone wants to learn. It can often lead to very serendipitous uh, fusion of knowledge that someone doesn't necessarily anticipate at the beginning of their learning journey. Mm -hmm, absolutely. On the topic of your experience at uh, Western, you were very active at in the Engineers Without Borders uh, student organization, and then also very active on a national level with uh, Engineers Without Borders, which for our listeners is a leading Canadian national charity that does a lot of work uh, around the world, uh, kind of connecting engineers uh, with uh, projects in developing countries. One of the things I'm fascinated about is the link that kind of extracurricular activities and, and those early leadership experiences can have on a young person's career trajectory and path. So what were some of the ways that your participation in Engineers Without Borders influenced your learning journey and where you are today? Mm hmm. That's yeah, absolutely. So my experience with Engineers Without Borders, I think, was very formative. And, and I think, um, like any kind of sort of extracurriculars and things that leadership sort of activities that that young people are, are, are uh, pursuing, I think, um, I think those experiences at that particular point in my life as well, um, really kind of showed me, um, gave me an opportunity, I guess, to, to, to sort of work as be a leader with amongst my peers and be able to sort of, um, as the president of the chapter at Western, be able to sort of run a mini organization um, and and understand the dynamics of that and how to uh, how to organize ourselves and how to um, how to get a lot of stuff done. <laughs> um, so while I was with Engineers Without Borders uh, at Western, so so EWB is a um, international development organization that does work internationally um, in a handful of countries in, in Africa supporting various ventures. It's not really an engineering organization. I would say it's almost more of a business organization of, of supporting uh, economic growth and development and supporting um, new businesses in, in those countries as well. Um, but there's a really strong focus within Canada and each of the chapters as well. So a lot of our work was actually just on campus um, things like becoming a fair trade university and, and working with, um, so we did a lot of work. That was another, I guess, experience over the course of my, uh, over the course of my sort of four or five years at university, it was kind of coming from an idea when I remember being in first year, talking to some of the more senior uh, students in EWB about what, what does fair trade mean and, and what, what does that mean about um, for products and what does that mean on campus? Um, and ideas around becoming a fair trade campus. And then 
Um, and then by the time I graduated university and was the president of the chapter, we were actually uh, very far down the line, actually, actually became certified as the Fair Trade Campus. And I spent many years in there kind of leading that initiative as well. Um, and so I think it taught me a lot about uh, about advocacy, about working with working with procurement at the university, um, working with sort of policy university policymakers to figure out how do we how do we make change happen, um, and how do we get the right supports from from students and from various folks on campus, working from both sort of the grassroots level um, directly with students to advocate for change, and then also at, at sort of the senior top levels to kind of bring change from the top down. Uh, by actually changing those policies. Yeah, it's. I think that the extracurricular activities, in our sense, provide uh, a sandbox for for young people to, in a relatively low risk. Although at the time, speaking of my own university experience, it feels very risky <laughs> and very intense. But in in the scheme of life, a relatively uh, low risk uh, activity. Uh, to really learn some of those foundational skills of what's involved in, in creating impact. And I think of my own life experiences and, I, and a lot of the extracurricular activities that I did um, certainly paved the way for doing Venture for Canada later on. Uh, and I think in the same mm. case, it's relevant to your work. I think, imagine your work with engineers uh, without borders significantly influenced your progression into the work that you do today at Enerstore. So shifting gears a little bit into the work of Enerstore uh, itself, is for our listeners, can you describe what is energy storage? And this is uh, energy storage, I think, is a term that uh, a lot of people have heard of, but it's not very well known. Uh, why is it important? Uh, and why is it particularly uh, important uh, and potentially impactful for Indigenous and or off uh, the grid uh, communities? Mm -hmm, absolutely. So Energy storage is, um, you're probably, people are hearing a lot more about it these days. It's been growing a lot. Um, the industry has been growing a lot. The technologies have been growing. The costs have been coming down um, over the past sort of five, five years, um, even 10 years. Um, and and it's, it's comparable to if you think kind of five, 10 years ago where solar was at, um, if that's a good analogy of of where the cost curves are really coming down and it's and it's really being starting to be um, deployed in a big way. Um, so what it is, is, is what it sounds like. It's storage of electricity. Um, so the electrons that we have in our grid, in our electricity grid, the way that the system works right now is that, um, is that every time you and your house are turning on your lights or running your washing machine, um, or using electricity in, in any way, at the exact same point in time as you're using those electrons, um, somebody needs to put those electrons onto the grid. So that often comes from, from fossil fuel generation like, like coal or gas uh, or hydro generation in a lot of parts of Canada or wind or solar. Um, so, so, the, so the challenge that we have is that our electricity system doesn't have any buffer. We're constantly trying to match supply and demand at every every point in time. Um, and I think that's a surprise to a lot of people uh, that we don't have buffer and inventory in the system. Every single sort of other industry has inventory where, where you can manage supply and demand by having that inventory in the middle. Um, but the electricity system 
honestly just hasn't really been upgraded and and it it was built a certain way 100 years ago and and hasn't changed that much um, and so energy storage is a new tool that provides provides that inventory in the middle you're able to take electrons when you don't need them hold on to them and then use them when you do need them um, and so in a lot of ways, it's providing efficiency um, to the grid, optimizing, just balancing the supply and demand um, so that you don't have to worry about that with other assets. And the reason that's becoming even more important today is because as we increase renewable energy um, from sources like solar or wind, the challenge with those sources of energy is that, is that they're variable or intermittent is what it's called. Um, and what that means is that you can't control when the sun is shining and when your electrons are going to be produced or when the wind is blowing and when those electrons are going to be produced. Um, so you need to be able to, to take that energy and even if, even if um, the wind, so oftentimes wind is really strong at nighttime hours when there isn't a lot of load. Um, so being able to take that electricity and, and use it when you actually need it uh, becomes, becomes really important as we transition to net zero energy. The benefit of fossil fuel energy is that it is controllable in the sense that you can ramp it up or down to match the load. Um, and, so, and so as we transition away from fossil fuels, storage becomes a really important part of the picture to, to enable that to happen. Um, and so just touching also on the remote communities piece of it. So uh, there's, there's actually, there's a number of communities across Canada that are not connected to the electricity grid at all. Um, and and a, those communities are primarily in sort of far away remote locations and primarily indigenous communities. And, and they are reliant on diesel fuel for, for all their power needs. Um, the diesel fuel still has to get to those communities as well. So it's transported long distances, um, which sort of adds to the economic or the environmental impacts of it. It's, it's, it's expensive um, and it's, it's um, yeah, harmful to the to the local environment and the health of health of those communities as well. Um, so now that we have the technologies of renewable energy and energy storage, it provides a really exciting alternative to diesel for those communities, where communities can actually develop their own projects and be able to um, be able to use renewable energy um, for the power, of course, but also as, as an economic tool to own those assets and be able to secure long-term revenue streams that, that they can use um, to build out all kinds of other infrastructure, social supports that they, they might need, whatever they sort of need, need most in their own community. Um, so so the, the energy storage piece of it in the remote communities um, is allowing for more renewable energy to be integrated into those, into those small microgrids as well. Um, so there's often, you might be able to get to say 20% is a good rule of thumb of renewable energy penetration um, in a community without energy, any, without any energy storage. Um, and energy storage really allows you to go beyond that. It sounds like energy storage really is kind of foundational for the uh, kind of evolution of our uh, uh, um, energy systems. Uh, towards more more renewable uh, resources and and also to the point that it it is an example energy storage has the potential to to make sure that these emerging green techno sustainable technologies are uh, both environmentally uh, very friendly and then also econo economically very uh, viable uh, as well of which there's great uh, leaps that have been made but i can imagine with energy storage 
uh, you're able to provide that much more of a, a economic uh, return uh, for for investors in terms of investing in uh, green energy projects. So on the topic of energy storage, uh, and uh, given its its level of importance uh, for not just Canada but for the world, what are some of the main challenges that exist regarding the adoption of energy storage? Uh, uh, and then relatedly, in the coming kind of decades, what are some of the main opportunities, technological advancements that you see in this space that could be really promising? Mm-hmm. So I think the main challenge with energy storage is still um, figuring out the business model. And that is really what Enerstore spends a lot of our time doing. Um, and the thing is, it's, it's, it's more complicated than renewable energy on its own. When you have a solar facility, the way that you, there's a very clear revenue model where you're creating an electron and you're getting paid um, a, certain, a certain price uh, per kilowatt hour that you're creating. And, and so that's a, that's a pretty straightforward transaction of electricity produced and, and electricity sort of paid for and, and compensated. Um, with energy storage, the reason it gets more comp- compensated is it's not creating any new electricity. You're taking, you're optimizing the grid overall. So there are specific services that uh, energy storage provides and it's, it's um, things like it's called ancillary services on the grid. So things like the second to second balancing, which might be um, related to balancing frequency, regulating frequency on the system, something called um, frequency regulation is the name of a service. There's um, things like operating reserve where you need to have um, the ability on the system to, to turn on electricity to provide needs within 10 minutes or within 30 minutes. There's different names for these, these services. Um, and and so, so in some parts of the country or in some markets, there are compensation mechanisms for those types of services um, where there might be a certain cost that you're paid for having uh, for providing one of those services. But in a lot of parts of, of Canada where we don't have open marketplaces around energy, it's a very heavily regulated industry. Um, and there might be a, a vertically int- integrated utility who sort of runs the entire system. Um, those costs are often a little bit hidden. Uh, so it's not clear, there's no clear market price or signal to say, this is the price of this service. And that's the price that I can pay an energy storage asset. Um, so that's what I guess we at Enerstore spend a lot of our time doing is, is trying, to, trying, to, trying to quantify what the value of storage can be in those different markets and then finding, finding mechanisms for how energy storage projects can actually be built and have, um, have reven- be commercially built um, and have revenues coming into them and also doing that at a cheaper cost than the status quo. I imagine uh... You're very knowledgeable in terms of the financing of all these projects and who are the, the people who actually or organizations that are funding this and what are the challenges that exist to funding energy storage projects. But given the you know, evolving nature of, of uh, the, the industry, uh, who are like the main players and making investments in, in energy storage? And is lack of access to financing or capital one of the main impediments that face uh, energy storage development in Canada? So I would actually say the lack of capital is probably not the biggest impediment. I think it really is around um, the structures that exist and sort of opening up that market to enable projects to be proposed and, and having ensuring that there is um, mechanisms to be paid for those projects. Um, I think when, when that is in place, 
the financing piece comes together because there's a clear revenue mechanism and there is a lot of a lot of folks who are interested in putting capital to work uh, in low carbon energy infrastructure. Um, so I would say, in my experience, at least that's that's not the biggest barrier. It's still it's still around just figuring out the business models and, and pathways to actually get the, the projects. Um, yeah, just on the revenue side, um, I guess. Sorry, what was the first part of that question again, Scott? It, it was about the lack of access to, to financing uh, kind of for the, the energy storage uh, space. And then the, the other part was about uh, who are the main players that mm. fund energy storage uh, projects in, in Canada? Right. So, um, so it's similar to the renewable energy industry more broadly as well of, of um, projects often use a, like a project finance model where there's a sort of a limited par partnership structure where uh, the assets are held and the contracts are held there and, and financing for projects comes in at that project level. Um, and so, so there's kind of your standard standard sort of breakdown of, of um, having debt financing as well as equity financing into these types of projects. And on the debt side, um, there is interest depending on if there's a contracted revenue stream. I think a lot of the traditional banks are, are sometimes interested in, in providing debt to these types of projects as well. I'd say there's also a lot of um, really interesting for smaller projects, really interesting um, groups that are that are interested in supporting green infrastructure when that comes to mind that would be really interesting to to for for listeners as well potentially is co-power um, where they've opened it up to allow everyone or all, if you have kind of a, a minimum threshold of, of investment to be able to uh, invest into these types of projects so you don't have to be a large institutional investor you can be an individual like you or i investing in sort of green bonds which support um, green energy infrastructure like this um, on the equity side, um, there's a number of, I guess, I guess, large players in, in Canada, and, and we've seen an interest from um, Enerstore actually had investment into our company a, a little while back from um, some of the pension funds as well. Uh, and I think it is a growing space where, where people are interested in, in, in green infrastructure and trying to um, yeah, put their money to work in that space. Yeah, I can imagine, uh, and especially the rise of uh, ESG and, and, and the, the desire to align uh, returns with uh, social and environmental impact, that there is going to be a lot more of a focus uh, on this uh, on this sector. Although, from what you're saying, it, it sounds like it's, it's probably not the lack of uh, financing that's an issue, it's more some of the structural um, kind of challenges. And in your answer to that, that question, it got me thinking around kind of systems change and the I think in the space you work in, you work you interact with many very complicated systems in the sense of there's actual sort of technology itself which is complicated, but also the the nature of these utilities and the electrical system is complicated. The governments and entities that regulate them, the various other I'm sure organizations that that are that are involved. When thinking about your kind of role, you know to what extent. Do you think in, in the kind of work that, that you do, systems leadership uh, is important? And, and, I, and for our listeners, could you define also what, what you think being a systems leader uh, means? Yeah, so, so definitely, I think it's super important in this space. As you, as you mentioned, there's just so many different stakeholders and it's a, as a heavily regulated industry, there's, um, there's so, many, uh, so many pieces to that. Um, so 
systems leadership is is actually a concept I think I first encountered through Engineers Without Borders of, of is is really understanding what that system looks like and who all those stakeholders are and how do you um, in terms of systems change like how do you actually uh, work within that framework to to implement um, to implement kind of changes <laughs> so, trying to think of words that don't have the have the word in the definition um but but i think i think it is it is really important like just the leadership aspects of of thinking about change generally like changes is, change is the only constant right um and there's so much that's changing in the electricity industry and i think one of the challenges is it it often does kind of come down to resistance to change of, of wanting to do things the way that they've been done um, instead of, instead of uh, for example, when we're looking at plans to transition away from, from coal generation, um, instead of sort of evaluating all of the new technologies that are, that are out there, oftentimes the default for utility is, is to build new gas plants because it provides kind of capacity that is reliable and that they're familiar with. Um, but that's, probably not the right answer if we're trying to get to a net zero energy system and don't want to have um, more sort of stranded assets that are fossil fuel based. Um, so I think like just that that perspective on long term thinking and, and leadership generally in the industry is super important. And I, I would I would give a lot of credit to um, at Enerstore, my CEO, Annette Bershuren, who has really played that role uh, in in creating creating Enerstore as a company and and supporting the industry and and sort of um, opening up the possibility of of uh, of what the system could look like and and how we actually get there. I agree. I think Annette is a, a great example of a of a systems leader. She's a phenomenal person. Been a supporter and donor to Venture for Canada in the past and really inspirational life story coming from rural Cape Breton to now one of the most uh, influential business leaders in in the country. Uh, you've worked uh, with Annette for many years, and I'm sure had lots of interactions with her. What are some of the lessons that you've uh, you've learned from from working with Annette? And then also in your answer, if you could maybe just give a little bit additional context on Annette's uh, background uh, first, that would be great as well. Mm -hmm, absolutely. So so Annette um, has a fantastic story, as you mentioned, Scott. Um, but she she has has grown to be just a fantastic Canadian business leader. She she grew Home Depot, um, led Home Depot, and grew it from um, like 60 stores to 600 stores. I, I can't remember the exact metrics around revenue and sales, but it's, uh, but it, but she was there, uh, and really led the growth and expansion of that company overall. She also founded, um, Michael's the arts and crafts store in Canada and, and, and built that out in, in this country as well. Um, and so, so I think, I, I've definitely learned a lot from Annette in, in working with her. And I think, um, a big piece of it is is actually mindset as well of of just kind of the like having having that um, vision and belief of what the system can look like and really being able to communicate that to to all the various people um, and kind of incumbents and stakeholders in the industry to show uh, to sort of show the way. Um, and and she actually for for anyone who's interested, she actually wrote a book called uh, called Bet on Me, which is which is a pretty pretty good like a great read, and it's very very easy read and sort of a business book summarizing a bunch of her lessons. Um, and one of the ones one of her lessons that that actually came from the book that's always really stuck with me um, on on sort of a, a personal level as well as business and kind of relates to all aspects 
uh, is around when you make decisions. And, and she talked about how um, there's no such thing as a wrong decision. It's really just about making a decision. And then once you've made that decision, you, you can do all the things that make that the right decision. Um, and, and it doesn't really matter like what you choose. It's just, it's, it's kind of following that path. Um, and that was all, that's something that's always kind of that I, I sort of look to as, as a, a guiding principle. <laughs> I agree. I, I, for our listeners, I definitely recommend checking out Annette's book and she really is a, uh, I think a, a fantastic role model for, for Canadians uh, to, to look at uh, both in terms of her business success, but also I think of uh, a business leader who really uh, meaningfully invests in giving back. Uh, you look at the different boards that she's on and, and shares and and I don't know how she manages all of her time commitments because she is makes impact on Canadian society in many, many different ways. And I think has also uh, stayed in touch, I think with her uh, Cape Breton roots and, and has that humility that is uh, sometimes rare at that levels. But I think that she, she it's very remarkable in many ways. So definitely recommend checking out the book. And, uh, and that is a very remarkable uh, Canadian. On the topic of uh, kind of shifting back to uh, energy storage and your work with Indigenous uh, communities uh, across uh, the country, the, the topic of reconciliation um, uh, and the relationship between Canada and Indigenous peoples is one that has often been overlooked for a long time, but is increasingly uh, a focus of, of, of many conversations. And many of Canada's leading corporations have a complicated relationship with uh, Indigenous peoples, particularly organizations that work in natural resources uh, development and have uh, very complex relationships with uh, Indigenous uh, peoples. In this vein, what are the ways that you think leading Canadian companies can work with Indigenous peoples to pursue uh, reconciliation? Uh, and yeah, would, would love to know your, your thoughts on this topic. Absolutely. Um, so this is a huge topic, <laughs> and, and I, I by no means would say that I'm, I'm an expert in it, but um, I think at the end of the day, it really does come down to respect um, and also dialogue. Um, and, and I think there's definitely been a lot of challenging history, but I, I think um, one of the paths forward is, is, is around sort of just real dialogue and, and real partnerships as well. Um, and, and I know with Enerstore, we're, I mean, we're, we don't represent the whole, the whole industry, but we definitely um, have built that into, I guess, our culture and approach to businesses um, is taking a partnerships first approach. And if we're building infrastructure, um, how, do we, how do we do it in a meaningful partnership with the communities um, who are impacted by it and, and who are surrounded by, by, that, by those projects? Um, and so we, we take that approach to not just our remote community projects, um, but our larger projects as well that are very connected. We actually just announced um, earlier this year a project in, in Southern Ontario called the Oneida Battery Project, which uh, is a 50-50 partnership with Six Nations of the Grand Rivers Development Corporation. Um, and it's a 250 megawatt, 1000 megawatt hour battery energy storage facility. Um, I don't know if that means much in terms of in terms of numbers to to many of the listeners, but 
it's essentially what will be one of the largest energy storage projects in um, in North America and one of, and in the world really uh, if it were built tomorrow. <laughs> so, so it's a really exciting project and and I think it's a demonstration that working in partnership with with communities, indigenous communities, um, is a fantastic opportunity uh, that actually serves projects better as well um, and cre can create a lot of a lot of local benefits. And, and I think um, it's not just, it, it's a dialogue. So for that project in particular, and I, I guess all of our projects, it's about starting the dialogue and starting the partnership um, at the beginning. So it's, it's not like we figure out a project and then bring it to someone as, as a last minute and say, how do we provide you some benefits out of this? It's really co-creating it together from the start of um, what is the idea? What could this look like? Um, where could it be? Where could it be located? Um, how does how does it how does the partnership look? Um, what investment criteria is the is the community interested in? Um, and how do we design something that's really unique and and meaningful? It is a fascinating topic, and I definitely recommend our listeners if you're interested in learning more. There's definitely a lot of evolving uh, jurisprudence on the topic in Canada of what constitutes consent of Indigenous people and, and what uh, uh, what is meaningful consultation uh, and what is meaningful sharing of resources and the, the profits from natural resources development. Uh, it's a space that is evolving substantially and uh, Indigenous peoples are uh, beginning to play uh, an even larger role in natural resources kind of with, within the country. And, and I think that a lot of Canada's future in terms of natural resources sector, Indigenous people are going to play an increasingly important role. And that is a really good thing for, for, for Canada. Uh, and uh, you, there's still lots of progress to be made. But I think you know the work of yourself, Shivani, and many, many other people, including many, many Indigenous leaders and Indigenous entrepreneurs across the country, is very uh, inspirational and, and really important uh, for uh, uh, indigenous peoples, but also for Canada as, as a whole, as, as a country. Mm -hmm. And I would just add to that, Scott, like not just in natural, I mean, natural resources broadly, but I think specifically in renewable energy as well. Um, the amount of indigenous sort of leadership in that space of really um, communities that are building projects and moving this forward is, is, is super encouraging and exciting, uh, where I think communities see this as an opportunity an opportunity that is aligned with their values of stewardship for the environment um, and economic reconciliation opportunities for for creating creating wealth and benefits in their communities uh, as well as supporting the climate there's a huge opportunity i think for engaging uh, indigenous leaders in all swaths of the, the canadian economy and i agree i think both in uh, uh, alternative or sustainable energy natural resources uh, and the Canadian tech sector as well. I think it, the reconciliation crosses all sectors uh, uh, with, I think, natural resources, a, a one that will probably be particularly uh, prominent. Um, but but uh, I think it's important to, to look at the, the entire country and, and recognize that every sector has an important part to potentially play in supporting reconciliation. Shivani, this has been a fascinating conversation. We have touched on a lot of different topics. Uh, including non-traditional career paths, uh, extra, how extracurricular activities influence someone's learning and career growth, creativity, and how learning and studying different things can foster creativity, 
energy storage and the and what what it is and and what what are its uh, challenges and and its uh, potential benefits systems leadership and reconciliation uh, we covered a lot in less than an hour but uh, you're you have a, I think a really unique uh, expertise and really unique experiences really excited to see what you're going to continue to do Shivani thanks so much for coming on the show today thank you Scott that's it for this week's episode of A New Wave of Entrepreneurship. Stay connected with us via our social and our email list. Subscribe to us in your favorite podcast app so that you don't miss our next episode. If you have feedback on today's episode, tweet us at venture for canada that is Venture, the number four, Canada, or email us at podcast at Venture4, that's spelled F-O-R, Canada.ca. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. I'm Scott Stewart, and until next time, stay safe, stay motivated, and stay grateful. A New Wave of Entrepreneurship is produced by Winita Lee Garcia and Latifa Farah. Editing and mixing also done by Latifa Farah. Erica Ormiston is our editorial assistant. Mark Wallach and Premium Beat own the copyright and publishing rights related to the song used in this podcast. The comments and opinions, recommendations, or suggestions expressed on the podcast by the guests are not liable to Venture for Canada and belong solely to each individual. Any information provided stated by our guests and our host is independent of Venture for Canada. A new wave of entrepreneurship is a Venture for Canada brand and all content is owned by Venture for Canada. If you'd like to use our content, please reach out to us at podcast at venture4, that's spelled F-O-R, Canada.ca.